Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. Today is uh, March 1st, 2022, and I'm delighted to have as a guest on this podcast for the New Books Network, Michael Gora of Smith College, who has written a wonderful book about William Faulkner and his relationship, his writing relationship, actually his personal relationship as well, with uh, the Civil War. The book is called, published by Norton, the imprint is Liverlight. It's called The Saddest Words, William Faulkner's Civil War. It was published at the end of last year, 2021. So let's not bury the lead, Michael. What are the saddest words? Everyone wants to know what the saddest words that Faulkner is talking about. Okay, there there are two of them. Uh, And the, the... The idea comes up in The Sound of the Fury. Uh, the, the father of the, the family at the heart of that novel, of Compson's, Mr. Compson says to his son, Quentin, that was is the saddest word of all, was. Uh, you know, the past tense of is, because when something is was, it's over, it's finished, it can't be changed, you can't do anything about it. And Quentin thinks to himself, he thinks, no, there's a sadder word. And that's again. Again is sadder than was because because what again implies is that things go on repeating themselves. Even if they are in the past, even if they have become was, they go on repeating in that you don't get over them. You may not be able to fix or change them, but you don't get over them. They have the capacity to hurt you again and again and again. And that's what, what is happening in this family where the the various traumas and difficulties and pains of family life, which are mostly clustered around, uh, around Quentin's sister, Candace or Caddy, those things are ever recurring. They are again, even though they are also was. And so, so those are the saddest words, was and again. And what I do is, is, is move out from that novel to think about those words in the context of, of Southern history. Um, Faulkner had a sense that, that um, Faulkner liked the present tense. He liked, uh, he liked to write in the present tense, which implied that things were not yet done. They were not yet finished. But he also knew that things were often over, that they were finished, they were unchanged. And I use those, those two words as a way to think about the, the history of the South and especially of the white South um, since the Civil War. Uh, people who are constantly replaying a history that they can't, that they can neither change nor get over, and so they're 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 they're, they're sort of frozen into their past, into a kind of a kind of moral stasis uh, that has left that South um, in many ways a kind of wasteland. Well, you you write quite a bit about the I guess you would call the historiography of the war, and 
I don't think it's quite right to say that the South was engaged in a revisionist history. It was something different than a revisionist history. They wanted it a way to uh, distort or change the whole idea of the of the war itself, what it was about, so that you actually had people denying that it was about slavery. Right. No, it's, it's not. Sorry, it's not just a revisionist history. It's a revanchist history. Uh, it's a, it's it's beyond revisionism. It's it's denying that the war was about what people at the time all said it was about. Um, you know, people in, in 1860 and 61, they all, they all said and they knew that the war was about slavery. It's after the South has lost and after they've, the South has managed in 1876 to defeat Reconstruction, to turn that back, they began to say, well, though it wasn't about slavery, it was a question of principle. It was a constitutional issue, or maybe it was about the tariff or um, all kinds of things like that. They, they, they find ways to deny what everybody at the moment knew the war was about. You can find soldiers on both sides saying, you know, who know, absolutely know that the war is about slavery as they're fighting it. What happens after the war is people, I, I think, in many ways, they're, they're embarrassed, ashamed to say, to admit that it was about slavery. They're embarrassed about the fact of slavery. And so they, they, they're trying to find high-minded justifications uh, for what has happened. Um, high-minded justifications that they can pass on to their children, perhaps, as a way of, of uh, avoiding a sense of, of uh, guilt that to enable them to think well of of, of that ancestral past. Um, also, of course, for political advantage in the, in the United States at the end of the 19th century. Um, if you can pretend that the war is about slavery, uh, what, what was about slavery, then you can pretend that, that there's nothing really wrong with the way that, um, that the white South is treating the black South. So this gave the the, the South a, a chance to save face, I guess is the phrase. To to what I'm sorry. To save face. To save to 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 save face, but saving face, of course, become be, becomes a power play, mm-hmm. and and then um, you know as part of that power play, you get all the all the Confederate monuments being erected around 1900, 1910, uh, which in many ways are designed to uh, to let the Black South know who's in charge again. Well, in your book, you, you write at some length about the compromise that historians, in a way, came to. Uh, they presented a compromise so that both the North and the South could get on with things and not actually be stuck in debating the real merits of the Civil War. Right. It's, it's a compromise not just with historians, but also with politicians and with uh, a compromise between, between the White South and the White North. Um, to uh, pretend that they don't know what they know, uh, that the war was about slavery, um, to say that it's about principle. And then in the early years of, in like in the, the 20s, in the 1920s, in the teens and 20s, you have uh, a different kind of historian who says that, well, the war was really about large impersonal economic forces. It was, it was about a, the transition to an industrial economy away from an agricultural economy. It was about the, the growth and the rise of sophisticated uh, instruments of modern capitalism uh, and individual people and choices and political, uh, the, the sort of the ebb and flow of daily politics really didn't have much to do to, to do with it at all, that, that, that this war was just a kind of inevitability. Um, that was what was, uh, I think, called, called the Progressive School of Politics, um, uh, associated with, with Charles, and Charles and Mary Beard, among others. Um, but that had the effect of, of downplaying the importance of slavery as well. Um, it's, in the, it's really in the post-World War II period that professional historians uh, began to look more closely at the role of slavery in the bringing about of the Civil War. You know, this goes back to the work of, of Alan Nevins, though, though of course, W.E.B. Du Bois had been working on those lines 
in the 1930s. It's, it's the professional historians um, slowly forge a, a consensus about the importance of, the, of slavery to the war, but it takes an awful long time for that to trickle down, uh, to trickle down into high school texts, um, to trickle down into popular awareness. Um, remember that many of the, the Southern states um, had textbook commissions that um, held that the South's, the South's secession had to be presented in a positive light. And so, so um, you know, I, I had a student um, around 2000 who'd gone to a private school in New Orleans um, who told me that she was surprised to learn that the Civil War was about slavery because that was not what she'd been taught in high school. Uh, and you know, and and this and and this was this was not um, this was an old line sort of uh, fancy traditional private school. It was not a not a modern seg, seg academy. Uh, but yes, it was. She was surprised to learn that. Um, as when she learned that, she was then eager to learn more uh, and wanted to write about that. And she had a sense that 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 her her teachers had in effect um, had in fact lied to her, um, but. But, uh, but that, that was still going on. Um, certainly when I was in high school, when you were in high school, we weren't, we weren't taught that slavery was what the Civil War was about. Um, it, was, uh, it was about states' rights. That's right. That's the great phrase that came out of the uh, discussion, states' rights. So, I want to bring you back, though, to what you wrote in your book and what Faulkner wrote in his books. And I thought I had a really clever way of describing as a way of an introduction, what happens here, saying that this is a meditation by you on Faulkner's meditation on the Civil War. But there, the more I thought about it, I, I don't think it really fits that it's a meditation by Faulkner because it's not really intentional, if I understand your book correctly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have this wonderful description well, it's, early it's... on in the book where you talk about how he would say things in public, he would write things that were clearly uh, racist, but that when it came to confronting that blank, naked page, something in him was triggered to be honest, to deal with the truth, and something came out that was different. So it wasn't really an intentional act on his part. It was something that he couldn't help himself from doing, that is, writing about race relations. Um, so you right. I, think, about- I think that's true. You know, if we- I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. If we're thinking about if we're thinking about uh, intentional acts, we might think of of Robert Penn Warren as uh, Robert Penn Warren as somebody who is consciously wrestling with and meditating on and trying to come to terms with with um, with that past in in his in his essays as well as in as in um, a book like uh, All the King's Men. But Faulkner, yes, when Faulkner is faced with that naked fictional page. He somehow becomes a different person than he is when he's going about as an everyday citizen, as a social being in in Mississippi in in, in those decades. You know, in, in in ordinary everyday life, there's not there's not a lot that separates Faulkner from many of the many of the the other white people of his time and class. But when the when that when that fictional page is there, there's something in him that's that's compelled or forced or or it's and I'm not even certain it's entirely willed um, to look more closely at his world at his society uh, than, than than he would have um, just as an ordinary social being I, th- I think it's one of the it's one of the mysteries of art I don't think this is unique to Faulkner I think it happens I think it happens with with most great writers that that um, that you know, in some ways, they, in the act of writing, in the act of writing, they find, this is an old, old line, but it's Matthew Arnold's line, they find their best selves. Uh, they find their, their best selves. And, and nowadays, I think a lot of us have, a, have trouble with that idea. We want, um, we want there to be a kind of seamlessness between, between the person and the artist, that, that, that what the artist is judged by the worst things the person has said. Um, never the other way around. Uh, 
but but that we, we, we want there to be a seamlessness, a wholeness, as if as if there is no no split. I think here of a line that um, the philosopher Kant said. He said, "Out of the, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made." Um, everybody's bent. Everybody has flaws. Uh, some of us, some people, fight them. Faulkner, when he's writing fiction, fought them. Uh, I think that writing fiction made him better than he was, uh, and better than he was in in you know civilian life, as it were. Uh, and then at times later in his life, even as sometimes he was saying really regrettable things, he would also try to do good things. I mean, he did try to organize other people in his town against the citizens' councils, uh, which were called the you know the uptown clan that. Uh, Gained a lot of power in Mississippi uh, after uh, after Brown v. Board of Education. Um, Faulkner Faulkner Faulkner, you know, wasn't wasn't didn't want that. Um, he wanted there to be a future, and he, and he didn't want Mississippi's future to be the same as its past. Um, I want to ask you uh, about the nature of your own meditation, as it appears in the book. But before I I, I do that, I want to just mention that. It was a few months ago I reread All the King's Men and was just stunned. I, I guess I was stunned the last time I read it also, but I'm just stunned by how good that book is. What do you think of the book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's I, the kind I, of book you finish and say, I, my God, if I could write just one page. It's about 10 or 15 years the since way that I Robert Penn Warren wrote uh, that book, I would be delighted. It's, I think, an Happily go to my grades. It's, an, I mean, it's just I mean, stunning how maybe, good it is. Maybe nothing in it is quite as good as the very beginning, the very beginning that that drive through rural Louisiana and the first meeting with the Huey Long character um, and the, 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 the discovery of this person who is has not yet become who he's going to become, uh, a book that shows how somebody who sets out to be an admirable person becomes increasingly... Um, megalomaniac, maybe evil, uh, certainly um, dangerous. Um, that it's a it's a magnificent it's a magnificent book. Did he write anything that came close to being as good as that? Anything else? I've only read a few other things by him and I, never I was particularly impressed. Yeah, you know, I've I've haven't read any of his other fiction, honestly. Oh, okay, um, I've read I've read his his his. Uh, his book on the legacy of the Civil War. Uh, it's a long essay. Uh, mm-hmm. I've read his, his book on integration, another long essay. I think those are, are important uh, books and the, the, the writing in them uh, is beautiful and meditative and powerful and it, they, they, they still have the capacity to make you think. He wrote wonderful critical essays. Uh, I don't, but I don't know about his other fiction. Um, I keep on hearing how 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 marvelous his poetry is, but I'm I'm not mm-hmm. a poetry person. So, yeah. All right. So back to this meditation that you engage in. You throw everything at this meditation. You travel everywhere. You you go and see the battlefields. You go to Mississippi. You go to Oxford. You spend all this time talking to people. You've read everything. It seems like when it comes to both uh, histories of the war and. Uh, interpretations of what's happened to the South in the last 150 years. Um, how in the world did you, you just threw yourself into this project, it seems. Is that a fair statement? I, 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 I guess it is. You know, I, I, I had a, there was a kind of run up to it um, in that before I started, before I thought of the project, I had, um, I had, done a Norton critical edition of As I Lay Dying. And that had gotten me to reread a lot of Faulkner and to start to learn my way around Faulkner criticism. And then as I was working up historical background for that novel, I started to learn some things about about, um, agriculture in Mississippi, about social structure and so on. Uh, As I started to think that I might want to write at greater length about Faulkner, and this was in 2010, 2011. Um, I, the way I learned new things is by teaching them. 
Um, so I came up with, with two courses uh, that would, would, would show me what this material was. Um, and I, I got the idea for this, as I say in the, in the introduction, on a sabbatical year that I was spending in Paris, when, when in the time when I, I wasn't writing or going out for dinner, I did a lot of historical reading on the Civil War. Um, that became the pleasure reading I was doing. I was doing that year. I, just something, something that year motivated me to take up to take up that that subject. I think it was partly because I was I was this is in 2010, and I was I was disturbed by the congressional elections that year and by the kind of rhetoric I was hearing um, uh, reading in the newspaper about um, people claiming states' rights issues over certain things. Um, this is when somebody like Ted Cruz began his rise. Um, I, I, so I was, I was thinking a lot about, about America that year as I was living abroad. Uh, and I thought I wanted to learn more about the war, but I was also, had been writing a little bit about Faulkner and I started to put those two things together. And so, as I said, the way, the way that I learned things is by, is by teaching them. So I, came up with a course on Faulkner that would, uh, you know, where I would read, say, eight novels with my students and I would be learning all the criticism and more critical background. And then, and then I came up with a, a course called Reading the Civil War, which is more of a history course than a literature course, but where, where we looked at a lot of um, documentary sources about the war. And I used the, the Library of America volumes on uh, the Civil War, as, as as seen by those who lived it, which collected documents uh, year by year going through the war, speeches and reports on battles and letters and diaries and all kinds of things. I read some in the historiography. I read some of the great diaries that came out of the war, um, all kinds of things like that. And I put together I put together a course um, that would you know take my students through that again mostly working with documentary sources. So they learned how to read primary materials. Um, and then, you know, as, uh, uh, a couple of uh, other things that would provide them with background. We, we looked at, uh, say, Bruce Catton's account of Pickett's charge um, in his, in his uh, history of the Army of the Potomac. And then we matched it with Shelby Foote's account of Pickett's charge from his trilogy. And what that, that let me do is to show my students uh, that even historical writing has a point of view. Um, there, you know, students uh, often think the history is objective, um, and, but by using these two different accounts of the same thing, I was showed, yeah, the history has a point of view. Catton, Catton positions himself behind the wall towards which the Confederates are marching, and Foot positions himself uh, just in, in the choices of, of historical actors he chooses to follow. He positions himself with the marching Confederates. Um, students, students really, really liked that assignment, and uh, I, I think it worked well. So anyway, that, that that's part of how I learned all this material, and then I read a lot of other fiction too. But when did you decide you had um, to go? Well, to these I guess places? I guess it wasn't. I guess it was a lot of work. Oh, what, what made me decide to go to go to these places? Yeah. Um, well, okay. Um, some of the best parts of your book are some, when, when you're describing these battles. Yeah. Yeah, describing yeah, what you're seeing now, imagining what it was like 150 years ago. Right. Okay. So the, the answer to that goes back in some ways to the book I wrote before this one, uh, which is a book about Henry James called Portrait of a Novel, Henry James and the Making of an American Masterpiece. Um, I had done, and in the book before that, I had done a little bit of travel writing. I'd written a, a travel book about Germany in which I used the German novels I was reading as a kind of guide to the places I was visiting. Um, what, I, what I did with the James book was um, I included descriptions of the places where he lived while he was writing Portrait of, of a Lady. Uh, I included uh, accounts of the places where he set the novel. Um, and sometimes, you know, visiting them and describing my my visits there, as you know, as as a writing as a travel writer in those scenes, and one of the one of the things that allowed me to do was to talk about the difference between, say, a documentary reality, an actual place, and um, 
and the way the use, the imaginative use that James made of it. It also allowed me, uh, when I'm talking about the places that he visited or the places where he wrote to, in effect, make him a character and um, uh, use that to, to animate my own writing. Um, I, found, I found that um, I wanted to find a way, and this was true with the James book, and I guess the Faulkner book did it as well, I wanted to find a way to turn uh, criticism, to turn literary criticism into a kind of storytelling. Uh, and I wanted to do that because, you know, very few people read literary criticism. Uh, very few people read criticism, I think, not just because the language of literary theory has gotten so difficult, but they, they, they read it. They don't read it because what we really want to read are stories. Uh, I think biography, biography tells stories and it draws many more readers than most works of literary criticism. So I was looking for a way to try to turn criticism into a narrative, into a story. And I found that by intercutting passages of analysis, or looking closely at, say, a given novel or a section of a novel, by intercutting that with an account of the writer's life, with accounts of my own attempts to find out about the writer's life and about the work and to understand them, um, that I could, I could create a kind of narrative engine that would, would let the book go forward as, as if it were a kind of story um, and that, that, that people would enjoy reading that. So that, 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 that was what I, what I tried to do. Um, and I guess that's where I, I threw myself into it. I've never had any prob problems using the first person in my writing. Um, but, uh, but usually, you know, in other and more straightforward critical things, that's just as a way of locating the argument. Here I made, in some moments, my, myself a character, myself looking, trying to understand, uh, having conversations with people. Um, and that, that, was, that, was, that was one of the pleasures. It also let me go, uh, honestly, let me go to some interesting places. Uh, the James book took me repeatedly to Italy and to all these Civil War battlefields for Faulkner. Uh, so that was fun. I, I understand what you're saying about narrative and, and story, and it is true that we read for stories, but you're selling yourself short some here because you are the story here. It's not just using the first person. <laughs> Thank you. It's your, yeah. it's your quest to understand not just this writer's take on history, but history itself. Right. That's what you did. Okay. Here. Yeah. So I would yeah. say, I just made some notes and I said that this is a very confident book. It's a very assertive book because it's about you and this text and history. It's not about theory in any way. So it's this breath of fresh air, to use a cliche, when it comes to literary studies. So one of the questions I have to ask you is, how do you situate, locate your book, uh, what you did in this book, in the context of literary studies as you understand them today, right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to answer answer another another question, implicit question first, and, the, and then I'll try to answer that. Um, one of the one of the things that I, I said in my preface is that I wanted to try to understand Faulkner and the Civil War and the different moments of both of them as a way to understand our country now. And that, that that understanding was, was um, I thought of myself writing not primarily as a scholar, but as a citizen, as somebody, as, as an American citizen trying to understand the, the course of our nation's history. Now, obviously, to do that, I, I had to draw on, on all the, on all the, the, the scholarly abilities, whatever they are that, that I have, the abilities as a researcher and as a writer and as a reader of, of fiction. Uh, and I, I used all those things to try to, to understand our past as a way to understand our present. And of course, the, the book you know, published in the summer of 2020 turned out to be much more timely than I had ever imagined it was going to be. Um, uh, and the, the summer of, of George Floyd and of, of in, you know, the summer in which the Confederate memorials began to come down. Um, the, the, the book turned out it was more timely than than I than, than, than I could have possibly known. Um, as to where 
I situate myself in, in literary studies? Um, it's, of course, a complicated question. Um, I'm somebody who uh, went to graduate school in English making, and, and well, when, when I decided to go to graduate school in English, the other thing I thought I was, I thought about doing was going to journalism school um, and saw myself as a potential reporter or magazine writer or uh, reviewer for newspapers, somebody working on the cultural or the arts desk and newspapers. I went to graduate school instead, but decided as I got into grad, when I got into graduate school, that I was going to try to do that too. Um, so I started writing book reviews when I was, uh, when I was in, in graduate school, I started writing book reviews for newspapers. Um, uh, this was the model of literary criticism I'd grown up with. I didn't know about scholarly journals when I was a kid. Um, we didn't see, I didn't see a whole lot of them when I was an undergraduate and the, the faculty members, uh, the professors I knew of who were publishing things when I was an undergraduate, my, my teachers, they were publishing in the New York Times Book Review and places like that. And I, I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Um, so I started trying to do that as soon as I got to graduate school. And I got, I was fortunate. I, I made a couple of contacts with, through some of my old professors and started writing for sort of old-fashioned literary quarterlies. Um, places like uh, the Hudson Review, for example. Uh, not strictly scholarly journals, but little magazines that would publish criticism alongside fiction and poetry. And that was always my, my preferred way of publishing. Um, I wasn't at all certain how this was going to play when it came time to look for a job or, or um, you know, with, within the academy as a whole. I began writing, writing book reviews for newspapers um, in the San Francisco Bay Area first, and then while I was still in graduate school um, for the, the, the Times Book Review. Um, so I kept on doing doing those things, and meanwhile, having yes to do some more traditional scholarly writing, um, I had to learn enough theory to get out of graduate school. Um, but um, I was never happy with well with two things. One is with the language of theory, which seemed to me to have a kind of totalizing claim. You seem to have to buy into whatever methodology you're using to totally. Um, and it didn't always seem to me as flexible as it might be. I thought, why can't we use a theoretical observation, just quote it and use it for what it can give you at that moment in the same way we might quote from uh, a critic like Lionel Trilling or, or old, other older critics. You know, just just um, use them, use theoretical observations normally. Um, and I think that's now what people do. Um, but this is, I was in graduate school in the, in the late seventies and early eighties. And when, when, when theory was ascended. Um, so I didn't like the totalizing claims of theoretical language. I also didn't like the way that that language um, seemed basically to exclude anybody who hadn't gone to graduate school. I wanted to write for whatever kind of quote unquote common reader there might be out there. I mean, the, 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 the simplest way to put this is I wanted to write things my parents could read um, and, and enjoy. And, and, uh, and so I, I wrote, you know, I, I wrote for, um, for newspapers. Uh, I did do some scholarly writing. I published books with university presses. But I think, I think all the time I was doing that, my, my best writing was really in the reviews I was doing for the Times or for TLS uh, and not in, the, not in my scholarly books. I think with the, the James book and, and the Faulkner book even more that I managed to find a way to, I don't know, use everything I had. Um, to, and and another, way, another way to put this is I thought, I can write a really, really good 2,000-word book review and keep people interested and say interesting things. Can I do that over three and 400 pages? Um, can I write with the same, I don't know, the same verve and the same energy and the same, um, you know, pull people along over that length? 
Um, so I needed to find a, a, a way to try to do that. Uh, and the, the storytelling and the bits of travel writing and so on, so, so, so on, fed, fed into that and were, were, were part of the way in which I, I tried to do that. I do, I do, I do feel that with, with um, these two books on, on James and on Faulkner, that, yeah, I was, I used, I found a way to maximize whatever abilities I have. Uh, and also, you know, in effect to minimize the things that I, I don't do very well. Um, well, which is, let me, let me jump in and ask you a question. Did you have to or did you consciously make a decision at some time during the project that it was for a trade publisher rather than an academic press that you were aiming for? I did. I did. Um, I did. I, I thought that, you know, there was a chance to reach more readers. Um, the James book, I, I, uh, the James, the James book was, I had an offer from both a trade press and a university press. And I didn't know the editor at the trade press and the way I did at the university press. So I, I emailed people I knew who'd published books with him and they said, absolutely go with him. Um, and, and, and so I did. And, and in fact, I think I got a level of editorial attention that I had not seen before in terms of the shaping of individual chapters, the shaping of the narrative. Um, you know, not, you know, not, 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 not things like the, the kinds of things you get from peer review. I had friends who colleagues who read chapters and gave me that, but, but things like, there's too much detail here, or you've started too many chapters this way, or um, this is a place where you should slow down for pace. Um, here are the things that the reader doesn't know that they need to know. Um, you know, characterize what this city was like at this moment. Um, you know, and and my my wonderful editor Bob Weil at at, at Liverite. Um, uh, is just a master at shaping a narrative, at helping helping an author shape a narrative. He was he was he was he was, he was wonderful, um, and and so so uh, now Norton, um, uh, if you manage to find an, an, a kind of sweet spot where you can appeal to both a scholarly audience and to um, a more general public, um, but that's 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 just a wonderful position to be in, and you know, and I, I, I guess I, I I seem to have done it with that. There are other people who do this. Um, well, when did Maya when did your agent uh, step into the picture? Oh. I guess I'm okay. just wondering so, how you yeah how you convince Norton that this is the book they should publish. Okay, okay, okay. So my my agent, my agent, the when I first had an agent, and he he has since left that firm. Uh, was a man named Steve Wasserman, who had been the book editor at the LA Times, the book review editor at the LA Times, and I'd written for him. And he was going to work as an agent, and I asked if he would be interested in taking me on as a client and, and representing this book. And, and he said yes. So he, he wrote, um, he read a couple of drafts of a proposal. We found ways to expand it to make it livelier, got rejected a few times, uh, and then revised in the light of those rejections. And then, um, and then, then, then he managed to um, place, he, he, what he sold was not the book, not the finished book, but the proposal. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, had to, then I had to write the book. <laughs> um, and uh, and, and he's, he's, since, he's since left uh, being an agent and uh, um, and has gone back to being an editor. Uh, he was at first at Yale University Press and now is is an editor at a small press in Berkeley. Um, and I'm represented by the the one of the founding partners of that agency, uh, Jill Nero. Um, but um, so so I was I was getting an agent is hard, and I think it would have been almost impossible to place a book like mine with a trade press without an agent. Um, so, so I, I was, I was very fortunate in that. A lot of people, when they read this book, are going to wonder about you and your reading habits. They're going to want to know just how well does he know Faulkner? Because you took the most difficult 
writer to write about. He is, I mean, I'm a fairly sophisticated reader and I struggle with his books. And you write actually quite a bit in your book about how difficult he is. Can you describe for me how well you, and I don't want you to be modest here. I just want you to tell me the facts. How well you know Faulkner. How many times you've read certain books, whether you've read them all, how often you've gone back to read them as a collection. Tell me about your relationship with Faulkner as a reader. Okay, so you know there there are some books I know much better than others. Um, uh, the second and third books of the Snoke trilogies, the Town and the Mansion, um, I've read them once. Uh, I've read them once. That um, read them after reading everything else, so I I, I knew the territory, um, and I knew I didn't wasn't going to have much to say about them. So so that once was enough. I don't know how many times I've read. Uh, as I lay dying. Um, I first read it the summer after I got out of college. And because I was teaching it at a, at a prep school summer session, I think I probably read it three times by the end of the summer. Um, and then I read it probably once I started teaching, I taught it almost annually in a, in a course for first year students on, on how to read fiction. So I probably reread that book every year, every other year for 10, 15 years. I've read it a number of times since then through doing editorial work. Sound of the Fury and Absalom, Absalom, it's the, the amount of, I've, I've, I've read them a lot. Um, I don't think I could count up the number of times I've read, I've read both of those novels. I think I've probably taught The Sound of the Fury about 10 times. And once, once you've taught something once or twice, you don't reread it every year, but you review it every year. Um, so I, I find myself going back more and more now to um, to Light in August, which is the novel that I would now that I, I didn't write a whole lot about it in the book, but I would like to write something about it someday. Um, uh, so I, I, you know, I, yes. Yes, I, I've I've put a lot of time in reading Faulkner, and so, so um, you know the Absalom Absalom is hard, and and uh, there it's not airplane reading even for me. Um, uh, some of his other books I could do, I could do on airplane, but Absalom Absalom, no. Um, the Sound and the Fury, uh, the technically complicated stream of consciousness chapters, uh, uh, the one from the point of view of, of Benji Compson, who's mentally disabled, and of Quentin Compson, who's about to commit suicide. Um, those are those I can sit back in a comfortable chair and, and now read, read very happily, very smoothly. But it wasn't like that the first four or five times. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me about Henry James. Oh, okay. How, how um, well do you know his uh, shelf of books? Well, again, I've, you know, with the exception of, of a few short stories, I've read everything, but I haven't read them all equally well or equally often. So again, Portrait of a Lady, I have no idea how many times I've read it. Um, same with Daisy Miller, Washington Square, um, Golden Bowl a few times, The Ambassadors a few times. Um, I'd like to reread The Golden Bowl, but there are other books other books that I like quite a lot that I've only read once, like The Tragic Muse or Roderick Hudson. Um, some of the James I've read most often are his, criti- his, his critical essays, um, The Art of Fiction or the prefaces he wrote to various of his own novels. Um, I like rereading his letters as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, James is a marvelous letter writer. Faulkner, Faulkner's a lousy letter writer. He, he barely wrote letters. He would sometimes just scribble a sentence or two on your letter and send it back to you. Uh, but James is a marvelous letter writer. Another thing people are going to want to know about you is, why do you do this? Now, I'll, I'll disclose a little bit about myself. I've read Hamlet, say, a hundred times. And every time I read it, I'm glad that I've read it that last time. So the hundredth <laughs> time, I still learn something that I didn't read yeah. or didn't yeah. know the first 99 times. Do you get right. that kind of satisfaction out of reading either Henry James or Faulkner? I do, and out of reading Jane Austen and George Eliot as well. So when the reader um, wants Dickens to know too. from you, yeah, what do you get out of these people, their, their, their novels? What do you say? Well, there's, there are a lot of different answers to that. 
One is pleasure. Just, I think pleasure is underrated. Uh, just the way those sentences make me shiver and sigh sometimes. The, the images make me, uh, in Dickens, make me happy. In George Eliot, make me think. In Faulkner, I think so many of the images are, are troubling in a, in, in a way that they're sort of overwhelming or sublime. Uh, they, but, but some of those, some of, I, one of the things I love about reading Faulkner is the rhythms of the sentences. When he gets his characters talking and telling stories to each other and telling lies to each other, sort of the, I love the, the oral quality that gets into his that gets into his novels his characters tell stories to each other um i love the way that he's able to pack six adjectives before a noun um often bleak ones and 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 that makes you shiver in a kind of in a kind of uh wintry night way um uh it's not a shiver with pleasure but it's a shiver where you know you're alive um you know, Emily Dickinson, I think, said that, that you, know, you, you know you've read a real poem, a poem of genius, when you feel like the top of your head has been taken off and you like it. Uh, and and I, 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 feel that, I feel that way when, I, when I'm reading Faulkner sometimes, especially Absalom, Absalom. Um, okay. Now, here's one last thing I wanted to ask you about. Edmund Wilson shows up in your book quite a few times, not just talking about patriotic gore, but Edmund Wilson, the critic. Get the idea that you... Uh, think very highly of him. And you think that he had this had made a great contribution to American letters. Well, I, I, I think he did, you know, um, Wilson's patriotic gore is patriotic gore is the book that taught us how to read the literature of the civil war. Uh, before that people were saying something like, Oh, you know, the civil war produced no great novel. It's not, there's no, there's no war and peace coming out of the civil war. There's no, there's no uh, Charterhouse of Parma. There's, there, there, there's no great novel out of the Civil War. And what Wilson said basically was, you're looking in the wrong place. There's great writing about the war. It may not be novels, but there's great writing about the war. There's speeches, there's letters, there's uh, historical writing, there are diaries, um, there are, are bits of memoir. There's great writing about the war. And in doing that, he not only made the war, uh, the Civil War, more available to us as a, as a literary subject. I think he, and this would take a while to play out, and it's not just him, but I, th I think he made us expand our notion of what counts as literature. Um, so yes, letters and diaries, they count as literature. Um, Memoirs, speeches, oratory—that's literature too. One of the one of the interesting things is that, that this is where, curiously, Wilson would be um, very much in sync with the feminist criticism of the '70s and '80s, which says you know, look beyond your usual canons of novels and and poems and plays. Look to other kinds of writing if we want to find significant literary expression. And so, so you know. Uh, you know, so, so people started looking more at letters and diaries and so on. This is actually something Virginia Woolf knew and, and, and wrote about as well. And I think she and Wilson would both be surprised to find each other, themselves in each other's company. But, but, um, but both of them are encouraging, yes, you to look beyond the, the usual suspects uh, for great writing. So, so I admire Wilson for that. And I also, I also admire him for... Um, for the way he combined uh, quite a lot of critical rigor with an ability to make his subjects vivid and alive on the page. So I admire him as a writer and in some ways um, uh, the sort of biographical sketches he does of the writers he, he works on, um, that's a model for me too. Well, I just wanted to mention that some of the best writing um, in your book is when you're writing about Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs. You have a, oh, just a yes. terrific section about that. I mean, he really oh, seemed to have captured your imagination in his description yes. of the war. So. Yes. Yes. All right. You know, he, he does, and, and I, I would say Sherman's as well. Sherman's memoirs are worth reading as well. Sherman is a more high-strung, slightly crazy person. 
than Grant is, but, uh, but his memoirs are, are very much worth reading. Um, so what are you throwing yourself into next? What's the next project? Uh, it's a completely different thing. Um, and it's, it's actually, uh, it's in some ways more academic. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to write, a, I'm writing a book, I'm starting a book on, on the 19th century short story. Um, this is another thing I've been teaching a class on. Um, I'm, I seem not capable of settling down into one field and, and, and sticking with it. So the 19th century short story, and it, it will be a comparative study looking at a lot of European materials, um, Russian short stories some French and German things, along with, along with, with, with American writers. So I will have Hawthorne in there and I'll also have Arthur Conan Doyle and Kipling, but along with Turgenev and Chekhov and, uh, um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's big and unwieldy and it's still taking shape and it, it will be a few years from now. Well, how do you uh, get some uh, travel out of that? You're going to have to go someplace, right? I, do, I don't think I'm going to get much travel out of it <laughs> and, and, unless I have to go look at, uh, go look at some libraries in France to look at how, uh, at how, uh, at say newspapers and magazines in which some of these things were first published. But, you know, unfortunately I suspect I can do that in probably in Cambridge. So, so not much, not much travel there and a lot more straightforward library work. All right. Well, I look forward to that book because I'm going to read everything that you've written now that I've read this book. I have not read the Henry James book and I plan to read it. Uh, Thank you. I'll be next week. Well, you've been a terrific guest. You really have been terrific because you've answered all the questions I put to you. Some of them are fairly challenging. You've answered them very honestly. And I really appreciate that uh, because I'm asking you about your life, really. But what right. makes you tick? And you told me. This, I'm really... this was fun. This was fun, Bill. You know, this, this was well, fun. That's good. Um, <laughs> all right. So I'm going to stop the recording and then you and I have to uh, hold on for a few minutes. All right. So once okay. again, Michael, thank you very much for doing this for the New Books Network.